Well, good evening again, church. It's Wednesday night. Time for our midweek devotional refresh. Close-ups of Jesus through the lens of Mark's gospel. This is part 16 already, and we're up to about halfway through Mark chapter 9. So grab a Bible. Let's just walk through some of these verses together. I'm thinking of Paul's words again. Beholding the glory of our Lord, he writes to the church at Corinth, we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. And so week by week, we've been looking at Jesus in uh, Mark's gospel. So I want to look at this incident, first of all, of the demon-possessed son. It's in Mark chapter 9, and we're going to read right from verse 14 to 29. So follow along. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And so I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, so the spirit sees Jesus, Immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can... And just a little editorial comment. I like some of the modern translations, uh, the Christian Standard Version and others. Instead of saying, if you can, exclamation mark, they have, if you can, question mark. Like Jesus is saying, really, you're, you're questioning me? You, you don't think I can? If you can, question mark? All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him, never to enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. The boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, and this would be the question, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, and then these are strange words, he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but, but prayer. I have about three or four thoughts from this. R remember, this follows coming down the Mount of Transfiguration. So, um, my first thought would be to note this rhythm between personal devotion and public ministry in the life of Jesus. Peter, Peter wanted to stay up on the mountain, 
Remember that? He said in, in chapter 9, verse 5, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Peter probably thought, you know what? This is the nicest that it's been for us in a long time. It's good for us to be here. Let's make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. But, of course, they can't stay on the mountain. There's down the valley, there's this demon-possessed boy, and there'll be other situations. And in each of our lives, I guess what I'm saying is, in each of our lives, there's this mix between, between that worship on the mountain, experiences where you, you sense just that blessedness of the Lord's presence and refreshing, and then warfare down in the valley. And I, I don't think anyone will ever be all that the Lord wants him to be if the emphasis is either on one or the other, so that, so that you know, it's wonderful just to worship and enjoy his presence and go to church and be fed. Those experiences are great, but they're meant to be transposed into, like there's a needy world out there that needs Jesus, needs his gospel, needs his touch, needs his ministry. And then there's the other situation where you just get busy doing things for the Lord, um, where, where even the Christian life gets so full, so busy, so hectic, and, and uh, just that discipline of aloneness, where there's feeding and nourishment. Ministry is not self-sustaining, and it, and it takes those times with the Lord where you're fed and you're nourished, your own heart gets lifted up. There's this, you see this beautiful balance in the life of Jesus, and he's ingraining it in his disciples. The next part is, is, is tricky. Jesus, Jesus has these remarks in 929 where he talks about why his disciples were ineffective in casting out this demon. 929, he, that's Jesus, said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And here's the hard thing about those words. Do we honestly believe the disciples knew nothing about prayer? See, I don't think that's the case. What, what could Jesus have, have meant? The disciples had been told already that casting out demons would be a part of their ministry, Mark 3, 14 and 15. So Jesus has already told them that they'd be doing this. What does he mean by, you know, this, this kind, there's, there's a lot of prayer. And I think... I think the lesson here is that any gift, any ministry, you're going to be casting out demons, Jesus says to them. But, but they're not to get the impression that any gift, any spiritual gift, any ministry that the Lord uses an individual in, it's not sustained automatically. We never, we never own those gifts in the sense that they're ours like magic tricks to perform wherever we want and however we want. That that any kind of ministry, any kind of gifting, any kind of divine enabling, anything that the Lord puts into our lives, it, it's still the case where he says in John 15, you have to abide in me and my words abide in you. Apart from me, you, you can do nothing. And, and specific ministries and giftings aren't an exception to that. So that, so that, for prayer to be effective, here's what I see in those strange words. Jesus says, this kind doesn't come out except by prayer. What I see in those words is that it takes more than just prayer fired up at the moment of ministry. 
when I want to see the result. It takes a life of prayer backing up moments of prayer. I think that's the best way to understand those, those words. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is who bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So it takes more than just strong prayer at the moment of ministry. It takes sustained life of prayer so that when we call on the Lord and minister in his name, it's not just trying to pump something up in a moment of panic, but it's a life that's been abiding in Jesus and his presence through sustained prayer and ministry. You, you can't build up powerful ministry just at the last minute. Something else I see here is C, I guess. Point number one, C. Jesus teaches what we are to do with weak faith. We should be so grateful for these words because most of us, at least at times, most of us find ourselves pretty much in the place of this Father. 9.22, it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. Just, just get, the, get the, the ethos here. This is your son, and you see this happening. And you don't know what to do. But if you can do anything, 922, please have compassion and help us. So, so here we have a man whose first efforts, you can see why he's desperate. Verse, verse 18, his first efforts at getting help from the disciples have failed. Okay? So at this, this point, he's, he's already gone to Jesus' disciples, brought his son, done his best, and it hasn't worked. So, so whatever little faith he had, now he has the discouragement of not getting his situation ministered to the way he would have liked. Maybe he's not even sure Jesus can. We don't know. Even his confession of faith, it's, it's mixed with doubt. 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, I love the honesty, I just, I just really need you to help with my belief. There's a lot of unbelief there. And so here's, here's what I try and take, and I think you should take from this, this incident. There's only, it's a terrible thing to just lecture people about their weak faith. There's a whole uh, it, it's dying out now, but the whole word faith movement where you just kind of lectured people about not confessing right, not believing enough, and, it, and it, this mountain of works is what it amounts to. There's only one thing to do with weak faith, and that's, and that's bring it to Jesus and use what you have. Start where you are. Notice that he doesn't allow his doubts. This father, to his credit, he clearly has doubts. He admits it, but he doesn't allow his doubts to immobilize him. He doesn't, he doesn't measure what his next step should be by the doubt and fear that he has in his heart. He doesn't let them rule. Pushes through those things. And Jesus seems to honor him because he uses the faith that he has. It can be the size, Jesus said, of a grain of mustard seed. Everybody else talks about great faith. I love the way Jesus talked about tiny faith and what he can do through it. Okay, so that's that miracle of deliverance. 
Point number two, Jesus, he, he teaches his disciples on the nature of spiritual blindness. I want to talk about this a bit. It's in Mark 9, 30, 31, and 32. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. This is the fourth time we've seen this in Mark's gospel. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, and here it is again, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. When he is killed, after three days, he will rise. You can't say it more clearly. Look at 32. But they did not understand the saying, fourth time. And, and Mark says, and they're afraid to ask. You know, if you don't get something the first time, you don't get something the second time, you want to try and understand, you don't get it the third time, the fourth time, you're not likely to say, can you just, uh, one more time, can you just go over that again? So they're, they're afraid to ask. They're embarrassed. The disciples, here, here's what I see going on here. The disciples had it... Uh, so firmly entrenched in their minds. They had read the prophet Isaiah they had, and, and, and not seen the gap between the first and second coming of Jesus, and they had it so firmly entrenched in their mind, the nature of the coming of Messiah and what he would do and the things they would see. They had this so ingrained in their minds that they could not get their heads around the kind of suffering and atoning death and resurrection that Jesus said, the true Messiah he himself would bring. Here's, here's the application point. Commonly held ideas, commonly held ideas can frequently blind us to biblical truth. Commonly held ideas, commonly held misconceptions, the just the, the mental input from the culture around us, the things that are made to appear normal. Misconceived ideas commonly held can make biblical truth seem irrational. And that, that's what's happening here. They, they've, got, they've got a picture, a mental picture, so firmly held, commonly held, enforced by the culture around them, that they can't hear Jesus saying, you're missing this. And so, and so for all of us, for all of us, it, it's great care has to be taken that we let the Bible speak for itself. Read it, understand it, but don't bring a grid through which everything has to pass. Point number three. Jesus starts to talk now about servanthood, 33 to 41. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? And they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and 
put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives such a child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So the treatment you give Jesus is the treatment you give God. What a claim to divinity right there. 38, John said to him, teacher, we saw, now they're picking up on this. John says, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. Remember, they couldn't cast the demon out just a while back. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons, 38, in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Nope, the plural. 39. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So so just get the big picture here. Jesus has just been talking to them about his cross. He clearly said, they're going to kill me. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. He's just been talking about preparing for his cross. And at the same time as they're walking, his disciples are arguing about who would be the greatest. No wonder Jesus earlier had warned them. Remember, warned them about the leaven of the Pharisees? In 8.15, he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So this, this desire for greatness, following Jesus and, and desiring greatness, it, it revealed itself in two ways in this text. First, they were competitive amongst themselves for recognition for their service. That's in 33 and 34. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? That's as they walked. Their casual conversation as they walked. They kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. They know it's not right. That's why they're silent. Sometimes sometimes you get caught up in foolish things. So, so to them, they're arguing about who would be the greatest. And for them, the reason is greatness carries this idea of reward, recognition. And that's probably why Jesus used this illustration of little children, because when you minister to little children, here's the thing, you're, they're not in a position to pay you or reward you. So that's probably why that's such an emphasis. So they were, they were competitive for reward. And secondly, here's the other uh, idea of greatness. They were intolerant with those who weren't of their group. I I read those words carefully in 38 to 40. I want to just look at them again. Mark 9, 38. Jesus said, John said to him, sorry, John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Now, I want you to compare those words because there's another passage that says 
something similar on the surface, but it's really quite different. Keep those words in mind and look at Matthew 12. Matthew 12, 30 says this. Jesus is the speaker, Matthew 12, 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. So he flips it around completely. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. So, so there, Jesus clearly says, you've got to be with me specifically. So loyalty to Jesus is an absolute must. But Mark 9, 38, teacher, we tried to stop them because he was not one of us. Loyalty to Jesus is a must. Doing things my way is not. And there's that difference there. Everyone must be personally loyal and attached to Jesus. There is no one else, and Jesus makes that so clear in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. That doesn't mean that everyone's loyal to Jesus has to, has to think exactly the way I think and do things exactly the way I do them. And the only thing that makes me want that is personal pride. The key thing, eh? The key thing is uh, staying close to Jesus, staying loyal to Jesus, serving with a heart that isn't craving recognition. How do I minister to people when there is no possible way of personal gain? other than just the, the smile of Jesus on what I do. It's great. It, I'm enjoying so much just working through Mark's gospel, concentrating on Jesus, beholding the glory of our Lord, are transformed from one degree of glory to another. Sunday morning will be uh, keeping your joy, the heartfelt theology of an isolated prisoner, and then Sunday night, we're going to get back into, I want to finish Romans. We never did. We did uh, 56 weeks. So I'm not going to review the first 56 weeks. But uh, Sunday at 6.30, we'll pick up in the book of Romans, part 57, making right choices when the Bible doesn't say what you're supposed to do. That's what we'll be studying there. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We're so grateful for it. My goodness, the freedom we have in our land to study the Word. And uh, I pray that these thoughts just cause them to uh, reside long after the TV and the computer is turned off. Let the seed of your Word remain in our lives to bear fruit. Bless our church. Keep your hand upon us. Guide and direct us. Keep all of our hearts close to you, Jesus, I pray. In your name, amen. God bless you, church. Stay in the word and love one another.